Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we're going to be doing a bit of a Western Conference check-in if you will, talking about some of the hottest teams out West because there are a few who are just on a roll right now and a couple who remain on the colder side and are really pretty disappointing overall and seeing what's going on with them and if we expect things to change. But let's start, Logan, with perhaps the hottest of them all. I mean, there's another team that is pushing them blow for blow, but the Denver Nuggets remain the top seed out West, 32-13, and having won eight straight games the second best record in the league overall and pretty darn close to the Celtics. They've really closed that gap. So let's just start with this. Are they now the clear favorite to come out of the West to you? And do you think that they have a legitimate chance to win the title? Because previously we were talking about this as, okay, it's going to be Boston and Milwaukee versus whoever comes out of the West. And the Eastern Conference team is probably going to win. Has your view on that changed with how well Denver's been playing? That's hot. I don't know about it. I don't know if I'm that spicy on on Denver. Favorite out of the West. I mean, I, I've had this conversation with people at work and stuff, just conversations coming up like that. I Denver's certainly up there for me. I still wonder if I favor a team like Golden State, if I'm being honest, just because I expect them to get back to where they're going to be playoff time. Denver's defense still scares me. The one edge, Carson, that I will say that I think Denver has over – Every other team is offensively, well, two two situations. Any clutch close game, I am expecting the Denver Nuggets to close it out. Any game where they are trailing by 20 points, I tell people, do not turn this game off. This game is not over. You do not bet against Nikola Jokic. I will give a prime example. The other night against the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, an unnamed friend of mine who uh, bet on the game, Start of the game just slings $20 on the Timberwolves because Jokic gets in foul trouble early. His thinking, oh, well, the Timberwolves are going to dominate non-Jokic minutes, so they should run away with this thing. And they did. Uh, Timberwolves get up to, I think, like an 18, 20-point lead here late in that game, and he's getting all giddy. He's getting all jacked up. Oh, I'm going to win 200 bucks or whatever the cash out was. And I told him, I told him point blank, you are an idiot for betting against Jokic, and this game is not over. Um... We get, uh, we move on. We're getting towards uh, close to the end of the game. The Nuggets close the gap. And I don't know if there is a scarier player in the NBA than Jamal Murray outside of, like, I don't know, Damian Lillard. When the game is on the line, I want the ball in Jamal Murray's hands. That dude has massive balls. I don't know what how else I should phrase it. That dude has huge nuts. He is not afraid of the moment, whatever. And time and time again, we see it. Uh, one, I want to... Uh, bash the Timberwolves for the closing out of that game. That was an abysmally handled game. Um, I think two of their final, like, five or six possessions, the T-Wolves just turned the ball over. They didn't even get a shot up. Like, all they needed was one to get a go-ahead bucket, and they turned the ball over. The Nuggets don't make those mistakes. 
the Nuggets needed all those possessions to go their way to get back in that game. And when it was on the line, Jamal Murray iced it. I think he had like three plays in a row where he got a bucket, and then the game was over. Jokic hits a midi towards the end of the game, and that's ball game. Um, I think the Nuggets are arguably the best clutch team. I think they're the best offense out West, maybe the best offense in the league. And then I think in the clutch, I think they're the scariest team to play in basketball point blank period. I don't want to – I think that's the distinct edge I would give Denver over other teams out West is I think they're clutcher, and I think in tight games, I'm not betting against them. I am betting Denver to pull it out because they manufacture offense so fucking easily. And again, you can attribute it to what you want, to Jokic and what he does, but again, in the moments, in those singular possessions, Jamal Murray is a cold-blooded killer, and I don't want people to forget that. He's going to be a massive factor in these playoffs. Uh Carson, you can get into the role players and stuff you want um, because I do think this is the best unit that Jokic has had around him maybe ever. I'm going to need to see it for a little bit longer. And again, Jokic defensively still scares me um, in the playoffs. I think they're probably two for me, and I just lean towards Golden State's experience and just, I don't know, trust. I just trust that Golden State's going to get back up there. I do not think that the Warriors are as good as the Nuggets this year, point blank. And I have been on the train of the Nuggets are my favorite out West for a while. I made a TikTok over a month ago, but they have gotten better since then, in my opinion. And part of that is just getting healthier, but they have hit a defensive stride that is really impressive. And obviously that was always the question about this team coming into the year. I said, hey, this should be the best offense in the league. And sure enough, they are number one in offensive rating. But over their last 15, they've climbed to sixth in defensive rating in that span. And that is certainly good enough to make them a title caliber team and the clear favorite out West, in my opinion. And I do think that you are going to be playing big playoff minutes with a couple of defensive liabilities on the floor, right? Jokic is a guy who will give effort. He's also going to be pretty tired in the playoffs, though I'm sure he's going to be playing heavy minutes with an absurd offensive load, and he is exploitable just as a slower-footed, non-vertical athlete. Teams with great guards are going to go at him like we've seen teams do in playoff series past. And then Michael Porter Jr., although he's a big guy, not a good lateral mover, not really an effective help side rim protector again even with his size just because of some of his limitations athletically so you are going to be dealing with a couple minuses outside of that though I think Aaron Gordon is clearly a versatile plus on that end KCP has been really good Jamal Murray is a big long pretty athletic guard who I think is not a good defender but regardless is a guy who takes up space and I think that that matters in the playoffs, especially when you're looking at some of the concepts that the Nuggets will bust out, like a 2-3 zone. Murray's a guy who is long, and I think that affects people. Obviously, Bruce Brown, a plus defender. So I think they can find combinations, and I think part of that may involve them really shortening the rotation. I think that's inevitable. I mean, we can look at it from all sides. The non-Jokic minutes have been a disaster offensively, defensively, this year, I mean, they get outscored by 11 points per 100 when he is not on the floor. And when he is on the floor, they absolutely dominate people. And he has the best on-court plus-minus of any player in basketball this year. So, I don't know how much we're going to see Bones Highland. I do think he has the potential to swing games with his dynamic shot making and could be essential as kind of that bench creator because they don't have anybody else who can fill that role but I do wonder if you see more of a Christian Brown comparatively just because, hey, here's a guy who we trust to shoot. He's a good athlete. He'll give his best on defense. There are some bigger wing options like Jeff Green, Vladko Chanchar, who aren't as good of basketball players as Bones Highland, certainly, but who can fill more of a competent role defensively because I do think that's what it's going to come down to. Like, Yes, Bones Highland can have massive quarters. He can have really big games. Is that what the Nuggets are going to need, though? Or do they need to avoid having exploitable pieces on the floor? Because what happens if you have Bones Highland in big minutes as a point of attack defender, and then you are running pick and roll with him or Jokic on a big or MPJ on a big? I mean, that is just going to be barbecue chicken for really good pick and roll ball handlers. So I think 
you have to play Jokic, obviously, as much as you possibly can. I think they're going to want to play MPJ a ton. And so then I think it's, all right, let's avoid the defensive liabilities. So, again, they've improved a lot. I still don't view them as, like, a top six defense come playoff time, but I do think they can be, like, the 10th best defense. And if they do that, I think they can win the title. I... I don't disagree with your take. I, I disagree that if their defense isn't at a high enough level, I don't think they're going to be able to win the NBA title. And I just want to ask you this. I, I don't like getting too into the hypotheticals and stuff like that and guys that they could should go out and trade for. I mean, then what's stopping them from getting a good point-of-attack guard defender and a good backup big? Because I think those are the two most important pieces that they need. Like an Alex Caruso and, a, I don't know, a Jakob Pertl, uh uh I mean, I think if they fill those two holes, like I think Denver should go all in on this year and on this core. I mean, they seem offensively, again, you can reiterate some of the numbers. They're first in field goal percentage. They're first in three-point percentage. They're second in assists. This is also another thing to mention, too. If the Nuggets end up with a very high seed, they have 15 straight wins at home. This is a tough team to play in Denver, too, man. That's one hell of a home court advantage. I think, I don't know. I don't trust this team right now if they don't make any moves. Now, just that there's such a burden on Nikola Jokic that I can't imagine him going to work and doing this for 24 straight games, you know, 20 plus games. I think it's going to tire him out by the end. And I, again, I worry about the defense. So I think their needs moving forward, I think you need to go out and get that point of attack guard. And I think you need to get a backup five who's impactful defensively to just relieve some of the pressure off Jokic. If they get those two assets, I'd put my chips into the table, and uh, I'd say the Nuggets are going to be in the finals. Okay. I will say, when we're looking at the West, I think everybody is flawed enough to where if they are a pretty average team defensively or slightly above average, they're my pick. And I do think they will be at that level. I am confident in them coming out of the West. Where I think you start talking about the real questions, for me... And that's not to say they can't be beaten. They could certainly be beaten. But I have the most faith in them out of the West. But yeah, if they're going to want to be seen as a legitimate threat to beat the Celtics or the healthy Bucks, I do think that would require defensive personnel improvement. Because I just, again, don't think they're a legit top six defense. I think there are too many exploitable pieces there when we're talking about playoff basketball. And I mean, if they could get Alex Caruso or Jakob Pertl... Those are two-way impact guys. Those are smart basketball players who defend their asses off. I just don't know how they do that. They don't have picks because they've already gone all in on this court. They've shipped away their 2023 pick, their 2025 pick, their 2027 pick. So I just don't really see that on the table. I'm sure they would love to be in the market, but I don't anticipate it. But I do think they're the best team out West. I mean, this offense is overwhelming. They are the most efficient three-point shooting team in basketball. They are able to play such phenomenal five-out stuff, and there's just such a versatility with everybody here, right? Like, so much of that starts with Jokic, but it is pretty remarkable when you can run pick-and-roll with Jamal Murray as the ball handler, who's an 89th percentile pick-and-roll ball handler, and Jokic, who's an 85th percentile roll man. And then you can also run inverted pick-and-roll where Jokic is handling, and by the way, Jokic is scoring with 87th percentile efficiency as a pick-and-roll ball handler this year, Logan. This is a 7-foot center, and you can have any guard or wing screen for him and then have shooting all around. They have athletes. Like, it's just a remarkable combination. They're the most efficient transition team because, again, they get out. They have a genius passer. They have spacers. They have athletes, and they just know how to play together, man. This is a team that really understands basketball and is just more talented than previous Nuggets teams. But this is the most perfectly suited roster to Jokic's skill set that we have seen. I mean, major props to Aaron Gordon for his continued evolution offensively. He's been phenomenal this year. Bruce Brown, again, turning into a 40% three-point shooter is huge. huge. KCP, good athlete, two-way monster, 47% from deep this year. It's just so complimentary. And when it comes down to it, Half-court offense, talked about how good they've been in transition, but when you're comparing them to a team like Memphis, for example, you consider as probably the other biggest contender out West, you can throw the Warriors in there too. I just trust the Nuggets the most. I really do. I think that this is 
an outstanding starting five. And just to give the numbers on that, dude, it's been the best lineup in basketball, pretty much. The Nuggets starting five. When they have KCP, Aaron Gordon, Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. out there, offensive rating of almost 123, be the best in the league, obviously. Defensive rating of 106 would be the best defense in the league. Net rating of over 16. And that's an almost 400 minutes of action that we've seen that five-man lineup. But you take any three-man combination of Jokic and two of the other starters, and they are outscoring teams by more than 10 points for 100 possessions. I just really believe in this team, man. Again, there is still probably a two-way gap when we're looking at Milwaukee and Boston. But I think this is the best offense in basketball. I think they clearly have the best offensive player in basketball. Maybe I shouldn't say clearly. Mad respect to Steph and KD belongs in that conversation. But I just think Jokic has the most pronounced impact between scoring and playmaking and changing the way that his teammates play so that they are optimized for success every night. I just don't think anybody's surpassing him. And I think this is the team that really has the chance to do it and should go to the finals. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I'm as big as a... I love watching Nuggets play, and I think you hit it on the head. I mean, he's the—I think what you're looking for, he's the easiest guy to play off of in basketball. He makes everybody great. You can be—you can put Christian Brown and Bones Highland out there, and they're effective off of this guy. Shout out those guys, but you get what I'm saying. Um, and actually, shout out Zeke Naji and Vladko Konchar for what they've been doing off the bench uh, recently. Um, I'm still—I'm not with you. I, I still think that there's a heavy— I think there's too much of a burden. Again, if they make a move, I'm with it. But I, I don't I don't see that I don't see that final ceiling here right now. Maybe I'll be wrong, but I, I just don't see it right now. You think they're too Jokic dependent? Yes. I just think that I think that eventually Jokic is either gonna be too tired at the end of all this, like late in the Western Conference finals, or I just think that these non Jokic minutes are gonna kill them. Well, that's a concern, and trust me, I mean, that is the potential killer here is just not trusting the back end of the rotation enough because you can shout out Conchar and... And that's why windows are so fleeting in the NBA, and we've seen the Nuggets' windows go by the wayside these past couple of seasons because MPJ and Jamal Murray just haven't been healthy at the right time. We can put a bow on it. This is the deepest bench that they've had. This is the best bench that they've had. This is the best batch of role players that they've had. Jamal Murray and MPJ are relatively healthy. I trust Jamal Murray as a second guy in the playoffs. I trust Jamal Murray as a go-to guy in the clutch. Nikola Jokic is the best player in basketball. And that's why I think the Nuggets need to strike while the iron is hot. You don't want to let this window pass you by. You don't want to let MPJ, Jamal, get hurt again or... You lose one rotation guy, and that's a big swing. You know, you lose A.G., Brown, KCP. That's a big misstep. And especially, the point is not to get to the NBA Finals, and that's why I think they need to get uh, another move. The point is to win a chip. I'm not taking the Nuggets in a seven-game series against the Boston Celtics. I'm not taking the Nuggets in a seven-game series, I don't think, against the Milwaukee Bucks. You know what I mean? I think... I'm not saying the Nuggets should be desperate. You shouldn't be looking to give away guys, but I would be shopping whatever I could to get one or two more guys to shore up this rotation and make myself... I would want to become the favorite out West, and I just don't think they are right now because of those concerns. The non-Jokic minutes, the and the last couple guys on the bench, I, that needs to change for me still, bro. Interesting. I just look at this combination, best offense in basketball, best offensive player in basketball, elite top six with guys who do their jobs at a really high level. And then that second guy who is a dynamic three-level scorer, who can be a closer, who can get his own shot and create for others in Jamal Murray. And Murray's going to have to be pretty darn good. Like, he can't be as erratic as he is sometimes. You know, there was a stretch in December where he had a five-point game and a six-point game and a three-game stretch. Certainly can't do that. But he's a gamer, man. I mean, Lest we forget what happened last time we saw him in the playoffs, he was 26-and-a-half a night with almost seven assists per game on blazing efficiency, 63% true shooting. He's a bucket getter, and I think when it comes down to half-court playoff basketball, guys like him who can just get their own shot consistently, especially when you have Nikola Jokic setting you a screen, for God's sakes, are so valuable and pretty much essential, and they have been 
glaringly missing that. Now they have it. They have better wings on both ends of the floor. I don't want to be a broken record. I just think this team is really, really good. And it's exciting to see them actually be in a position where you're like, wow, it's not just Jokic, who is probably still the best he's ever been, but this is like a finals caliber roster. Right now, I would say Golden State is my number one out West, I think. And I don't mean with how they're playing, duh. Um, mm-hmm. Come playoff time, I would say Golden State, Denver, probably Memphis in the New Orleans. Okay. All right, well, that was a long time on the Nuggets. So let's talk now about the team that, again, is pushing them for that one seed. The Grizzlies have won 10 straight and have really established themselves, again, as one of the league's elite regular season teams at the very least. So what have you made of this? How do you view them in terms of playoff outlook and what they're doing right now? Yeah, I think playoff outlook is the most interesting thing for Memphis because, uh, uh, one, again, I just want to flex. Uh, I've picked Memphis as my number one team in the West in the preseason. Uh, they're dogs in the regular season. Taylor Jenkins gets this team to go to work. They grab their lunch pails. They grab their hard hat, and they put in work. This is what Memphis does, man. They All their guys play hard no matter who's in the rotation every night. Um Desmond Bain has been back for a little bit, too. Um, He's looked really good. I still hate Dylan Brooks. I hope he steps on a Lego tonight. Um, uh, Hand up. I was completely wrong about Jaron Jackson Jr. in my Defensive Player of the Year assessment. Uh, We already addressed that. I'll run back some numbers, too, man. That Cleveland game was absolutely disgusting. Right now, Triple J is averaging 4.6 blocks per uh, 36 minutes. Um, Dude, I mean... I don't think he's like the best point-blank pick-and-roll defender in basketball, but god damn, man, the mental lapses that we would see from Triple J defensively, um, just routinely, when he was younger, he doesn't make those mistakes anymore, man. He's so anticipatory. He's, like, honestly, like, I hate positioning-wise, Jaron knows where to be to disrupt the play now, and he's fucking disruptive. Uh, You said this on our last pod. They were 30th in defense through the first seven games. They were 20th in defensive rating when Triple J debuted. They were first, uh, they're first in defense now with him on the court. Nine points better per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor. A defensive rating of 102.3. That's disgusting. And in Triple J minutes, opponents are shooting 48.4% in the paint. That's an 8% difference uh, with Triple J on the floor. Uh, those are real numbers, and again, man, I talk about the pick and roll. It doesn't matter where you put him in the pick and roll. He's so fucking long, and it, I don't mean it as the guy with the ball in his hands is taking a shot. He impacts th- He plays the role of three different defenders on the court when you put him in any situation in the pick and roll. He can take the ball handler, and he can shut him off and take his shot away because his arms are long. He can roll to the roll man and send his shit against the glass, but he can also take the help side guy if there's not another guy sliding to help Triple J. Watch that Cleveland game. There's a bunch of different pick and rolls with Garland, Allen, and Mobley. Again, the best pick and roll, I think, foursome in basketball. Uh, I don't know if Mitchell was out there for that game, but Garland, Mitchell, Allen, and Mobley. And Jaron doesn't care. He's disrupting it at every level, um, no matter where they're kicking the ball. Mobley gets one on the help side, and he sends it off the glass. Uh Triple J is disgusting, so I think that's their defense is nuts with him on the court, and I think that's what you should look forward to most come playoff time is you've got your defensive centerpiece where the thing is minutes, though, because fouling is still an issue. Are you going to be able to play Triple J 30 to 32 minutes a night come playoff time? I don't know. Fouling's still a problem. It's marginally better this year. It's still an issue. But if you can play Ja in Triple J 36 minutes, on each end of the floor, you have your superstars. You have your guys who are going to anchor up on that side of the floor. Ja can get anything out of the half court. Triple J can stop anything in the half court. And that's why I would debate maybe having Memphis above Denver. Memphis has a completely different defensive ceiling, and that's the thing. They've got a completely higher different defensive ceiling. The Nuggets have this crazy high offensive ceiling. So in a tight game, when you need a tough bucket, obviously I think I'd take Denver. But I just trust that Memphis is going to be great on the other end consistently. Um, that's what makes this so intriguing. We've seen Ja be a superstar in the playoffs, and I think a lot of teams can adopt what Minnesota did against them in the first round and play Ja harder, um, try to take him away. 
but they've got superstars on both ends. And I think that Desmond Bain can be good enough as a second guy to get them through. Um, I think there's probably a case for Memphis to be the number two team. Again, I, I like Golden State. I just think that the playoff experience, I don't like their depth as much this year, but I trust them to get to a competent level. Memphis has superstars on both ends of the floor, Carson, and that's what's going to carry them through the playoffs. Again, I think that I think it could be a Memphis-Denver uh, Western Conference Finals if Golden State doesn't get their head out of their ass. They're deep. They've got a lot of guys that play their role. I love Santi Aldama and how he just plays team basketball, plays within himself. You've got a really solid bench, and guys that just go to work every night, but two superstars on each end. Um this is the best Memphis has ever been. Again, I don't think I'd take them out. I definitely think I'm going to take Memphis to win the West, though. You are talking about regular season you're going to take them to win the rep? Yeah, I think they're going to win the West, yeah. I think it's going to come down to it between them and Denver, but there's a solid case for the Grizzlies because of just their brilliance night-to-night defensively, and I think they're clearly the best defense in the league. Like, you talk about that Cavs game, dude. The clutch defense that Memphis demonstrated, where you have one possession, Triple J is switched on to Garland, shuts him down, I think forces him into a tough jumper, they get the ball back, he shuts Garland down again, the Cavs' next possession, they have a chance to win it, and again, Garland is contained this time by Dylan Brooks, just clamped, gives it over to Karis LeVert, Bain has him contained, gives it right back to Garland, Garland takes a really tough three off the bounce, gets blocked by Dylan Brooks. Like, they just have monstrous personnel there. Triple J is certainly the best. Again, I think should be Defensive Player of the Year, having an incredible season. But it's like, they don't have anybody who you can attack. Like, teams can look at Steven Adams and think, okay, we're going to go after him, we're going to hunt him. But pretty damn good defender, man. Like, maybe not great in space, but solid, long, super tough, physical, smart, and they just have athletes, man. They can recover from anywhere. They can put really intense pressure on ball handlers. They're just phenomenal on that end of the floor, and again, they're the best in the league. And I will say the other thing that really sort of changes the outlook of this entire team to me is the continued progression of Desmond Bain, who I think if he had played close to every game this year, would have a shot at being an all-star. Like, the dude is just stellar. Obviously, we all know about his ability as a pure shooter, coming around screens, off movement. But an 89th percentile pick-and-roll score this year, really grown to an above-average playmaker, had a couple of really nice finds in that Cavs game. One where he's coming out of pick-and-roll, looks like he's going up for a shot. Triple J starts cutting, just zips it down to a mimicking like a little hook motion really nicely done and the Grizzlies are 19 and 5 when he plays and the guy's putting up 22 5 and 4 on 43 percent from deep so he's a star man he's a bona fide star and that's kind of always been one of the biggest concerns with this Memphis team is okay where is the high level reliable offense the shot making the playmaking coming from other than John the big moments Desmond Bain is changing the dynamic of that conversation I still don't think, though, that they're a good enough half-court offense. Even with Bain's progression, they're the number 22 half-court offense this year, Logan. Like, I'm sorry. I will not pick a team that is a significantly below-average half-court offense to win the NBA title or to get out of their conference. Okay, I just want to say, I think it's a very valid criticism, but I think what Memphis needs to do is slot Desmond Bain to the two spot, and I think they need to play Dylan Brooks less. They have an offensive rating in lineups where they run Bain at the two, or the most prominent lineup where they run Bain at the two and have Dylan Brooks off the floor. So you're basically taking Brooks' ball handling duties out of his hands. You're giving them to Bain. They have an offensive rating of 134.1. Now, granted, that's only in 123 possessions of basketball. They are a significantly better offense Uh, by points per play, by in the half court, overall with Bain taking over those ball handling duties. I mean, that's and that's with Brooks off the floor. I think you can take two takeaways from that. Trade Dylan Brooks' bum ass because he sucks. Uh. Play Desmond Bain more and put the rock in his hands. 
Carson, that's a lineup with John Conchar. Yeah. That's a lineup with What's John Conchar. In those minutes, great as well. One hundred and seventy, one hundred and seven point three. Really good. That's a small sample size, though. Listen, man, the Dylan Brooks thing is a very double-edged sword. Because he stinks. He doesn't. He's one of the best man perimeter defenders in basketball. He's a clam. He's ugly. Well, sure. And he's erratic, and he should shoot the ball less. Like, he should not be taking 15 shots a game. He just thinks he's like, I don't know, man. I think in Dylan Brooks' world, he thinks he's like Michael Jordan or something. Yes, I agree. He's he's like Denzel Valentine. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but he is a very flawed offensive player. That's for sure. I mean, he shot 35% in their last playoff series. This time, he's under 15% for shooting. Of course, two years ago in the playoffs, he was phenomenal. But for the most part, yeah, you're going to get ugly offense out of Dylan Brooks. I mean, that's just the reality. The last few years, he's consistently 45 to 48% on twos and 30 to 34% on threes. Like, he's a well-below-average high-volume offensive player. But he's a really good defensive player. I don't know. It's an interesting thought, and I think if you're getting bad Dylan Brooks offensively, you will see stretches in the game where they sub him out for somebody who is more competent offensively, but I do think they're going to play Dylan Brooks a lot because of what he provides on the defensive end of the floor. So, again, it just comes down to playoff basketball is more about half-court offense. The Grizzlies are still not a half-court offense. Last year, we saw their transition success go down. They were scoring 2.3 less transition points per game in the playoffs, 4% worse effective field goal percentage. That's just the trend, man. Transition basketball becomes more of a rarity in the playoffs, whereas in the regular season, it can carry you to being like a borderline elite offense, even if you are not good in the half court, because the Grizzlies get out in transition that frequently and are that good there. And that's obviously jaw, but Bain is also really good in transition as a ball handler or as a shooter. Like, they know how to get out and run. But there's too much of a gap there. I think that they belong in the top three because they are an elite defensive team, the best defense in the league. They have one, like, I, I'll i say superstar-level offensive player. There's clearly a gap between Jaw and the genuine, like, offensive gods, right? He's not in a Jokic, Steph, KD, Luka tier. He's not even close. The scoring efficiency isn't there. The pull-up jump shooting and how essential that is isn't there at his position. But, I mean, the guy gets to the rim pretty much at will and is a pretty darn good playmaker. They have that. They have a really good secondary player. They have pretty good complementary pieces, but they're a below-average shooting team. And their bench is good. Their bench is always good, but I, I don't think it's like difference maker. Oh, wow, this Grizzlies bench is going to matter a ton in a series against the Warriors or the Nuggets. They have the advantage, but it's not enough to swing the fact that, again, they are not a good half-court offense. I won't say it a million times, but it's a pretty big deal to me when you're talking about teams in this tier. No, I mean, you can look at the advanced numbers, too. I recommend go to the half-court uh, numbers for them. Um, they're abysmal, like points per play-wise, because you can go off points per possession. I'll tell you the Grizzlies is a great offense. Carson, all of their their top four offensive lineups, um, all bottom half of the league in points per play. Like, they're abysmal. So, with that being said, is there another – is there a bench asset that you think you can go out and get? Do you get a – Guy who can just fill it up in bunches. Uh, you know what I mean. That Malik Monk, Terrence Ross, just a score. Is there a, or do you just kind of ride and see what happens? I mean, I don't, with as much as there's, in my opinion, I don't think there's enough ball to go around. Tyus is your bench guy. Ja is your starter. I don't really know if that's even an asset that you need because you kind of just need more spot up shooters and stuff. That's just not how Memphis operates. I think the ideal scenario would to be have Dylan Brooks's defense with somebody else's offense. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's fair. And I that's think they'd fair. be pretty darn close. I also do still think it matters. I don't want to rag on Jaw because he's spectacular, but the gap between him yeah. and the top five kind of guys where it's effortless, hyper-efficient offense whenever they're on the floor, that does matter. Dude, another conversation I had with somebody the other day, I posed them a question. You could have one guy um, for a playoff run right now, no injuries, no nothing. The guy's fully healthy for the entirety of the run. Who are you taking? Uh, my list went Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and then I think Luka Doncic was my third. L take, no Jokic, no Steph. Uh, Jokic and Steph are four and five. You would rather have Luka than Jokic or Steph. Interesting. 
for a playoff run, yeah. I just think Luka can carry you through offensively. Oh, yeah, because those guys can't. Shut up. <laughs> he said jaw, and I wanted to what smack him. What an idiot. Him. What a jackass. And I to smack him, and I was like, what's wrong with you, dude, over, like, Jason Tatum? or I don't know, man. That was uh... – that's like the worst take I've, I, I, I do think. I love John Morant. He's one of the most fun guys to watch in the league. And if you're going off highlights and explosiveness and just aesthetically pleasing basketball, yeah, man, I love Ja as much as the next guy. But he's he's tier two. He's tier two of the superstars. And I don't think that's a debate. I think that people really overrate Ja in that regard. They look, oh, Memphis is super high in the West. Let's give all this attribution to Ja. It's not that simple. And I, I do think he's slightly overrated right now. I agree. When we were talking about the all-star conversation, I think SGA is better than Jaw. I think SGA is a much more complete scorer and a better defensive player. Yeah, that's somebody who's watching a lot of highlights. And uh, Jaw is thrilling. And listen, there have been few bigger Jaw advocates from the jump than I. I picked him to win rookie of the year before the season started. I love Jaw, but... Uh, let's hold our horses here. <laughs> he is not in the tier of guy you want for any one playoff run. All right. We might have to cut a couple topics here, Logan, just as a matter of time. I have to learn some Italian after we do this podcast. But let's keep talking about the teams that are on fire right now. One of them is your Sacramento Kings, Logan. They have won five straight. They have climbed up to third in the Western Conference standings at 25-18. and 18. How legit are they? Can they make playoff noise? What have been the keys? Break it down. They're cool. I don't know if they're going to make playoff noise. Yeah, they're cool. Uh, the biggest difference uh, has obviously been Mike Brown and uh, what he's been doing offensively. The two numbers that you need to look at, um, Kings fans, non-Kings fans, they were 19th in passes made in 2022. This season, they are 5th in passes made. Last season, they were 23rd in assists. This season, they are third in assists. This team moves the ball. They run through Domas, and it works. And, I mean, just fundamentally, people that I play pickup basketball with, man, I ran like seven, eight games yesterday. Guys, three passes in any situation, in any offensive set, is going to get you a better shot than three dribbles, fundamentally. You move the rock to – moving the rock makes things so much easier. You catch guys lacking. Passing the ball leads to easy basketball. Um, they're number three in offensive rating right now, Carson. They're number three in true shooting percentage. And I think the defense is concerning. They're number 24 in defensive rating. This team plays hard. They play cohesively. And fundamentally, passing and getting everybody involved leads to guys working on that end. That's not the issue. Um, I think I'll focus defensively first. I think they need a backup rim protector. I threw out Jakob Pertl earlier. I don't really care who it is. I want a vertical athlete, a guy who can genuinely protect the rim. I want a guy who can maybe slide a little bit too and is just more of a versatile defender. Uh, either way, I don't think Rashawn Holmes should be in the playoff rotation. They're 14 points worse per 100 possessions with Holmes. They play like a 19-win team with him on the floor. He's just not impactful defensively. And I think, again, like I said for Jokic, to pick up for a guy who's so average on that end, you need a guy who's really impactful. And so I think that come playoff time, if they want to make some noise, they need that guy. They need a backup rim protector or an impactful five. But the thing that really is staggering and astounding about this team, Carson, is you see it in Denver and you do see it in Sacramento. The ease and open shot quality that guys are getting from behind the arc. There's one lineup here. Um, there's a couple lineups. The lineup of Mitchell, Herter, Barnes, Murray, and Sabonis. They have an offensive rating of 126.6. Collectively as a unit, they shoot 50.5% from deep. That's stupid. That makes no sense. And it's all because, again, everything's so spaced out. Everybody's a threat. You can't help. When DeMontis Sabonis is playing up at the elbow and doing handoffs, well, there's nobody in the paint, too. And that leads to something I think is really interesting with another lineup. Fox, Monk, Herder, Barnes, and Sabonis. This is their best offensive unit by far. It's a limited sample size. They have an offensive rating of 143.7. It's ridiculous. And that lineup, it's a little over 100. It's not a huge sample size. But what I do think, what I do think is telling is uh, they're in the 98th percentile of at-rim attempts. That lineup gets downhill because there's no one in the paint. And what I'm getting at is a guy like Sabonis... A guy like Jokic, 
It's unquantifiable. I can tell you these numbers and I can tell you what they mean. They lead to the two most open shots in basketball. At rim attempts because there's not a big guy clogging the lane in open three-pointer attempts because they're spreading the floor. And it just leads to easy offensive basketball that is going to be effortless. Uh, their next best lineup, Fox Herder, Barnes, Murray, and Sabonis, they have an offensive rating of 120.9. I mean, all of their top five units I don't think Fox and Mitchell can play together. I think that is one offensive unit that just fundamentally does not work. I don't think you can play Davion and De'Aaron together. Uh, I just, I don't think it's going to work. But it leads to easy offense. The one thing that I am concerned about, Carson, um, De'Aaron Fox has been elite in clutch moments. And I think that's something that everybody's been pointing to recently. Um, He's number two in clutch points per game right behind DeMar DeRose. And he's number one in clutch field goal percentage um, with decent volume. I still wonder if that's going to translate in the playoffs. I'm not saying that De'Aaron's not cold. What I am going to say is that he's a bad mid-range shooter, and I still don't like the shot quality that he generates in these late moments. It's like, yeah, man, he knocked down that turnaround fade from 18 feet, but is that a good shot? I want guys who are going to generate open looks, right? Like Jamal Murray in that late game against Minnesota, he's so fucking shifty and such a good shooter he created that foot of space and went up that three. I just think there's a there's a level of ease that comes into clutch shooting and clutch shot creation. Fox has been great, but sometimes stats don't tell you the whole story, and I don't think they tell you the whole one here. I don't like Fox as a late-game bucket getter. So uh, to, to put a bow on this, the Kings are great. I think they need two assets. I think they need that bench big like I talked about, and I also think they need a bench scorer um, a fill-it-up guy like Malik Monk. And I love Malik Monk to death, but God damn it, man. There's only so many 0-for-7 outings and 0-for-5 outings that you can take. I just want a guy who's a little more consistent and a guy who's going to do more well-rounded things on the basketball. Because, man, when Malik's hot, he's hot, and he's fucking sick, and it's awesome to watch. He's a highlight reel. But when he's off, he's very off. And I think Sacramento needs another guy who's going to just be more consistent at producing buckets or just a well-rounded player that is good defensively, that can play within the team, and kind of like Keegan Murray, like who can just slick the wheels and play within himself, if that makes sense. Um, I think the Kings could win a playoff series with how their offense is playing, but they need two more assets to make a run. Yeah, they're far away from true contention, and it can really be as simple as they are a bad defensive team. In their best moments, they are a bad defensive team. Like, last 10 games, they're 7-3. and three. That includes that five-game win streak. They're still 24th in defensive rating. And so there's just a pretty hard ceiling on any team for which that is the reality. We're not talking about average defense. We're talking about one of the worst defenses in the league because they just don't have the personnel there. I will say, though, yeah, this is an elite offense. And I think, honestly, it wasn't that hard to predict but the key has been Mike Brown and you already touched on that so I won't really go on for too long but he has done a phenomenal job of putting these guys in positions to succeed right turning this into the most handoff prolific offense in the NBA and Kevin Herter is the leading handoff scorer in the NBA allowing Sabonis to weaponize his passing like that having guys cut around Sabonis way more having guys move without the ball more so you can get these really great shooters open looks it's been really impressive and I think at this point with the downturn the Nets have taken in a small sample size without KD if that continues if KD takes a bit to come back if the Nets regular season record ends up not being so spectacular I do think Mike Brown would be my pick for coach of the year because of what he has done schematically making the most of this offense making the most of all these guys because it's like yeah when you have dynamic shooters Kevin Herter Keegan Murray Harrison Barnes, Malik Monk, those guys are playing a significant majority of the wing minutes. And then you have a brilliant passing hub, uber-efficient score like DeMontis Sabonis, really versatile passer. And then you have your dynamic pick-and-roll score like De'Aaron Fox. Why shouldn't that be an elite offense? It should. The problem is, point to me the single-plus defender out of all those guys who I just mentioned. I don't think you can. So, can this team win a playoff series? They can. I think it is matchup dependent. I mean, right now, they would be playing 
the Utah Jazz in the first round of the playoffs, right? Which is also not a good defensive team who they are more talented than offensively and better than offensively. Yeah, they would win that series. If they draw the Mavs, who are in the five seed, yeah, they could win that. I, I They really could win that. I mean, obviously, there's the potential of Luka going superhuman. If the guys around him shoot and defend well, then they're tough to beat. But the West is flawed, man. They're not winning two playoff series. They're not beating the Nuggets, certainly. They're not beating the Grizzlies. But in some ways, obviously, late in the playoffs, you want home court. But if you're just looking at first-round matchups, being in the three or four spot is pretty good because you're probably, well... Shouldn't say probably because the margins are so slim. But you may avoid the Clippers or the Warriors, who bottom line, I mean, the Clippers have kind of sucked, but I still don't think you want to see them in a first-round playoff series. And the Warriors, I think we both agree, still belong as a top-three contender out West at the very least. I would probably still have them second. I think I still like them more than the Grizzlies with the strength of their top six. And they have this guy named Steph Curry who's actually pretty remarkable, and they won the title last year with a pretty similar roster. So bench flaws and effort inconsistency and Jordan Poole inefficiency and all. still think the Warriors are going to be pretty damn good when it matters. So if the Kings can avoid one of those matchups, sure. I would pick them to beat the Timberwolves. I'd pick them to beat the Jazz. I think that they certainly could beat the Mavericks, but I don't think they're better than the Pelicans. I don't think they're better than the Warriors. I don't think they're better than the top two teams out West. So it's an accomplishment. They've been fun. They've been really good offensively. And that's something to be proud of. And it's better than what they could have expected. But no, this team is not going to the Western Conference Finals. And frankly, with this core, as good as they can be offensively, I don't know how you construct a good defense with this personnel. Sports journalism majors burying the lead here. Yeah, and they're going to end the longest playoff drought in uh, sports, which is uh, the big deal um, here. And that's why, I mean, Kings fans are going to be happy. And I think the biggest thing... People are packing the fucking stadium, man. It's been a while since you've seen that building. They're in the arena. The fans are hype. We're lighting the freaking beam. You're right, though. In basketball, the most important thing that you can have is be impactful. As an individual player is to be impactful on both ends of the floor. And frankly, you've got, what, two on this roster? Maybe two? Like Keegan Murray and Davion Mitchell on a good day? You know, I... That's what's going to hold them back. And so I think that it's fun. And you know what, man? I think Kings fans should be happy with being 500. I, I'm happy with just being competitive. Like, the finals are, it takes time to build these things out, and I'd rather have a team that plays fun basketball, that's competitive in each and every game, and plays good up-tempo offensive basketball, and is competitive, than a team in the fucking cellar trotting out, I don't know, man. We're about to. I'm about to edit the Kings scoring leaders video, and I don't know, man. I'll I'll throw that one out there. Zach Randolph led the Kings in scoring in 2018. We've come a far away. Don't forget Marcus Thornton and whatever that was, 2013. Yeah. The Kings have come a far away indeed, and they should be proud. And there's another team, Logan, that some people may have expected to be in that category of trotting out the tank squad that is actually now in their last 15 games, 10-5, and and has won... Four straight now and is sitting in a playoff spot. And that is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Just one game below 500. So what's up with that, Logan? Uh, Josh Giddy's looked a lot better. Um, SGA is still carrying this team through. Shout out Giddy for real. Um, We said it. Uh, We've been saying this for a long time that if Josh Giddy could just get up to 35% from deep, he would be a scary, scary threat. He's shooting 36% um, over the past 15 games. Granted, that's on about three attempts a night. Good. That shouldn't be his forte, but uh, Giddy has been pretty abysmal scoring-wise. I think, I want to say over the last 10 games, he's at like 23, 8-8 or something like that. That's just off the top of my head, though. Um, 19-8-7 over these last 15 on 53-36-92 splits. That's an important number. Again, that's two free throws a night. Giddy doesn't really drive the lane as much as uh, you'd like, you know, drawing into that contact. He relies on that floater in the in-between area. But it's promising. Um, If Giddy's jumper comes along, I can definitely see him as a secondary star to Shea Gilgis-Alexander. That's that's a potent-ass offensive duo, man. Two really crafty, tall, long, pick-and-roll ball handlers with great passing vision. Um, Could be building blocks of the future. Uh... I want to give a shout-out to some of these bench guys, and I think shooting 
which is streaky with this team. Again, the attention that SGA commands with what Giddy can do out of the pick and roll. This team generates a lot of three-point opportunities, and guys have been shooting well. Dort is over 40% in the last 15 games. Yeah, man, uh, that's not going to continue through the rest of the season. Um, you know, you've got uh, Kenrich, <laughs> Kenny, Kenny Hustle, Kenrich Williams is over 50% from deep. Muscala's over 40% from deep, who I actually think they need to play Muscala more. This team has been pretty great in Mike Muscala, and it's just because he can space the floor at the five spot. Um, and, I mean, they play hard defensively. The one guy I want to give a shout-out to that I don't think enough people are talking about, and I've been watching him for a while, play Isaiah Joe. This is Peyton T. Galler, a friend of the show, like it's one of his favorite players uh, ever. I can't tell you how many times Peyton would bite our ear off about Isaiah Joe. He's small in stature. I think he's like 6'3", a buck 60, 6'2", a buck, a buck 70 soaking wet. He's not a big dude, and so he's kind of limited in his role, right? He attacks closeouts, drives the lane when he can, kicks it back out, but he's a three-point specialist, and he makes things so much easier for SGA as an outlet guy on the far wing just to kick it out to and reset or take a shot because I don't know. Teams don't D him up. Isaiah's shooting 46% from the field and 43% from deep on basically five attempts a night. That's where the volume and bulk of his shots come from. And his plus minus is great. I, I just think that he's a really good off-ball guy and he's an elite shooter. It just makes things easier for guys. Um, and that's a problem. When you've got Lou Dort and Jalen Williams and Poku and Giddy out there, it's tough. Like, think about that. Like, again... Basketball is a collective. The Kings offense would not be great without DeMontis Sabonis, and that's one thing that fucking pisses me off when people talk about Kings basketball is they look at Fox's raw numbers and they go, oh my God, man, Darren Fox would be averaging 30 efficiently if he was, like, by himself. No, he wouldn't, buddy. I know he's done it in the past. DeMontis Sabonis makes this thing work. It's like saying, oh, man, Jamal Murray would be putting up 35 without Jokic. Or just That's a nonsensical take. What I'm saying is, what the fuck SGA is doing is so much more impressive because he has so many non-floor spacers and offensive, offensively inept players. And so, play the guys that can shoot. I, I get it, man. Basketball's hard because you need guys who are great on the other end. That's why you play a guy like Lou Dort, right? You need two-way guys. You need guys who are good defensively. Uh, Isaiah Joe is a guy who just makes things easier because of the spacing he brings to the floor. And he only plays like 19 minutes a night. I'd play him more. Um, Spacing is such an important thing in the modern NBA, and you cannot take it for granted in any individual situation. I just think him and Muscala make things a lot easier on the offensive end for Oklahoma City. And uh, I think they need to lean into that if they want to win games. Um, Limited sample size here, 138 possessions. SGA, Jalen Williams, Dort, Giddy, and Muscala are 18, 18 points better offensively um, than their regular regular lineup. They are seven points better defensively with that lineup, too. I think that's the one you need to run with the rest of the way, and I think you need to play Joe. My fundamental take here, give SGA some offensive help, man. You've got Giddy balling. SGA has been balling all season. Give Muscala and Joe some minutes and watch this offense take off. Yes, they need floor spacers. Lou Dort is not going to shoot 40% the rest of the way, bruh. This team is feisty on the other end, but who cares about defense? This team isn't doing anything in the playoffs. Okay, well, I can tell you why they aren't playing Mike Muscala and Isaiah Joe more, because why do they care about Mike Muscala and Isaiah Joe? I mean, they're not future fucking assets, but who cares? That's what I'm saying. Well, no, I think they're still in the mindset of... Let's play our young guys and see what happens. And it just so happens that collection of young guys has gotten a good bit better and they're scrappy as hell defensively and they're long and they're pretty athletic and they fly around the floor. And last 15 games, they've been the number three defense in basketball. And like you said, they've been shooting better and that's allowed them to take a leap offensively to where in that stretch, they're the number six offense in basketball, which is insane. The Thunder are top six team on both ends of the floor. But again, it's almost like that's just sort of a byproduct of them being like, all right, well, let's see what all of our young guys can do. So I think it's pretty simple. I don't think that winning games right now is their number one priority, but I do think you have to give props to some of the winning improvements that we have seen from these guys and that defensive engagement. 
I think has to come first. I mean, that is exceptionally impressive from a team this young and that you could look at in a vacuum and say they don't really have a huge incentive to win games, but they're going out there and they're certainly doing their best to do so. I do think the Giddy improvement is cool and impressive, and he's a guy who I've sort of had a complicated relationship with. I mean, you know, there was a time where we were talking a lot, but then he said something I didn't like so much about uh, my father, and then we'd stop talking, and I don't know. Now we're trying to figure out where that whole relationship lies. But in a more serious sense, because I don't actually know Josh Giddy all that well, I initially really liked him as a prospect right when he was a guy that people were talking about in the 20s. I thought, oh, my God, what a beautiful passer. And then... I thought, all right, well, the consensus has come too high on him now. Like, he's not going to be a good defender. He's too limited as a scorer. That shot is busted as hell. He's going sixth overall. Whoa, that's too high. Then I was down on him compared to the consensus. And now I think he's improving. And there's still issues, but I think that he's found a really nice way to score in the lane with that floater, which he's making 47% of. I do think he's gotten a bit more physical as a driver. He doesn't get all the way to the bucket that often because... He's not a great athlete, but again, he's getting to that spot five, six feet away where he can sort of use some of his touch finishing and score with decent efficiency, and his production's improved, and obviously he's a great playmaker. I mean, he's a guy who, when he gets into that lane, can find shooters, can find cutters, can find rollers from all over the place and do so very consistently, so props to him. Jalen Williams, I think, Santa Clara Jalen Williams, not the other Jalen Williams, is another guy who deserves props, obviously, took him in the first round this year and have kind of thrown him into the fire a bit where he's been playing 28 minutes a game. He started a majority of their games on the season and really unique player at 6'6", has not really had much success shooting the ball this year, only 29% from deep, but does a lot of things well, plays really hard. You'll see them use him as a screener sometimes just with how guard centrics the lineups that they play are it makes sense and he does a nice job of moving out of that good cutter but also as a ball handler I mean incisive driver can really get to the bucket has a nice finishing package there quick guy and is a good decision maker a good passer so I like Jalen Williams I mean I want to see him shoot better for sure but I've been impressed by what we've seen there so SGA is the most important part in all of it. Like, I don't want to bury the lead because he's a borderline top 10 player in basketball and has been all year and, you know, has taken strides as a pull-up jump shooter and as a defensive player and is just an absolute monster. He's dropping over 30 a game on really good efficiency. But Giddy's come along, Jalen Williams has come along, and this team has really found its defensive identity. So they're fun, they're scrappy. I don't look at them as a team that... Uh, certainly is not going to win a playoff series. I don't think they'll end up in the playoffs, but I mean, is there a significant gap between them and the Jazz, between them and the Timberwolves that we've seen? I mean, I would still like the Timberwolves more at full strength, but I don't know, man. There's a lot of ugly teams out West, and the Thunder are making a push. They're possibly going to fight their way into the play And although I still don't know, like... The Blazers have really struggled recently, which disappoints me because I like the Blazers a lot early in the year. I still think they're better. The Suns, you know, obviously, I mean, right now it's just a health disaster. The Suns aren't very good, but they're better than the Thunder at full strength, I think. Yeah, at full strength, the bench blows, though. They've taken they've taken such a drop-off. Um, like you said, too, though, man, this has been a staple of Oklahoma City no matter who's taken the floor. This team was like, I mean— not that being like twenty in defensive rating is impressive or anything, but I mean they were there. And it's yeah. Last year they were a competent defensive team, which like if you, you wouldn't draw, really expect. If you want to draw the difference, go down south just a little bit. Houston is the polar opposite. This is another team that needs that guidance, and it's weird because I can't remember who said it on ESPN or you know you need. You need older guys, older veterans in the locker room to help guide these guys and make them play hard. Oklahoma City has never had that issue, and it's mostly been a locker room, like you said, of just young guys. And then Mike fucking Muscala and Lou Dort. Um, Houston still has that issue, and so it is encouraging that these guys play that hard on that end. And they've also been doing it without 
Nerd says favorite JRE. Not that JRE is swinging games or anything, but he's a versatile, good defender, and he's a solid player. And uh, I don't know. This is – it's really – I don't want to overstate it, but it really is impressive that a young team is that committed on that end because it's rare. Again, Houston doesn't play defense. Houston doesn't give a fuck. They're okay with losing. And there's a difference. And you're right. I don't think there's a big gap between Utah. I don't think there's a big gap between Minnesota and – Obviously, Minnesota with Cat, I'd probably take. But, um, yeah, it is impressive. Shout out SGA, though. SGA is the SGA is the man. SGA is the man. And I think, would you still have him in Tier 2? Do you think he's Tier 2 or Tier 1? Uh, I think he's Tier 2. I mean, I think Tier 1 ends with Joel Embiid. And then that's my top six. You're not putting him in that tier, but I think he's, yeah, he's better than Jaw. I think Tatum I would take above him, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a huge gap. You I think Tatum in tier two? Yeah. I think Tatum kicks off tier two for me. Still too inconsistent offensively. As I, think a I'd swap him in, I think I'd swap him and Embiid. You like Tatum more than Embiid? I just think Embiid's too free throw dependent. I think that's going to show in the playoffs, and I think he's just injury prone. I think Jason Tatum is too dependent on shooting himself in the foot sometimes. That's fair. That's very fair. The one last thing I will emphasize again about this team's defensive success compared to, like, the Rockets, yeah, effort is a huge part of it. This team is also comically long, though. I mean, they don't have a starter with an under 6'7 wingspan, and Josh Giddy at 6'8 is the shortest wingspan. Like, Jalen Williams has a 7'2 wingspan. It's absurd. Poku is a 7'3 wingspan. SGA, 6'11. Lou Dort, 6'8. Like, that's how you survive without playing a traditional center and actually thrive because they're quicker and they're longer and they're feisty. Real quick, any Poku thoughts from you? Because obviously he was such a highly discussed draft pick and then I know you particularly were quite disgusted by him but he really was pretty darn bad and this year he's he's certainly improved any thoughts yeah I mean I just I'd, I'd end the experiment I'd let him go I, I don't really think really I don't really think Poku's anything man I don't my, here's my question what position in an ideal world what position does Poku play the Is four the, I mean I just Poku's very young, and so I don't want to make like any final judgments on any player this young because it it takes time. I don't really think that Poku does anything special or extraordinary, and I don't know if there's a. I certainly don't see a star ceiling or anything no. above being a a backup three or four at this point, in my opinion. He's he's long, which will help him. You know, I mean, if he gets to shooting a little better, is he yeah. still hurt? Yeah. Like, he is. I just, out of all the young guys, if I'm being honest, I think Poku's probably my least favorite out of the Williams. Even like, I don't know, man. Like, I like Trey Mann certainly way more than Poku. Uh, I, not that I'm giving up on the guy, but I'm certainly way lower. I wasn't ever like particularly high on Poku. I, I still am very, very low on on the guy. What about you? I think he's okay. Uh, certainly no star ceiling, but like. This year, we've seen more of the good out of him shooting the ball well, having more of an impact as a pure shot blocker where you have the length, you have some of the timing and instincts from him, and you know he has his moments as a passer. Uh, he's not good, but he's okay. He's really weird, obviously. Like He's a, he's a guy that I just think has to, I hate using this phrase, play within himself mm-hmm. and like not try to do too much. Just make the extra pass, Don't because he's not a... I don't know, man. You look at those freaks when they come out of the draft, and they're seven foot, they're 190 pounds. You're, yeah, yeah, man. This guy will be able to handle the rock and be super versatile. I just think he's a guy who needs to be a three and D more role player who moves the rock and gets up and down the floor. And some guys just have to accept that. That's what I do in pickup basketball. I'm I'm a guy who just gets up and down the floor and I, I play my role, bro. I shut my mouth and I play the game. Um, I just don't see Poku ever being like a takeover scorer, a guy who I can trust with the ball in my yeah, hands. Or neither do I. But is that the expectation we put on every guy who was picked, whatever he was, 17th overall? No, but I think a lot of people were hopeful that he'd be more versatile than this. Yeah, I agree. I think overall he's probably underwhelmed, but we're at the point in year three now where he's an actual NBA player, which he really wasn't the last two years. But again, 
you know, some of their biggest successes come with him off the floor injured, unfortunately. So I don't know. I just think he's the last sort of like interesting, weird piece here, given that obviously we haven't really seen Usmane Jang. Trey Mann's had a bit of a down year. I know that probably bums you out, but good for the Thunder, man. Like they're fighting, they're competitive, and I think we can all respect that. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for us here today. Uh, again, we did not get to talk about the teams we hinted at who have been disappointing and had those contending expectations, the Clippers and Warriors. We'll try to talk about them soon on another pod, but this was fun. I thought it was fun to give props to some of the teams that are really doing well out West. If you want more Nerd Sesh content, then check out our freaking YouTube channel, man. I just came out with a video about Franz Wagner, why he's an underrated future star, and is he the best player from last year's draft? I don't know. You'll have to watch the video to find out. Check us out on TikTok. We're always coming out with trivia content there and some shorter basketball analysis stuff, too. You can follow us across social channels. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. Join our Discord. The link to that is in the bio of any of our social accounts there. You can just hop in, talk about sports with us at any time. It's a tight-knit community. We want to grow it right now, though. We want it to be big and uh, bodacious. And... Uh, Check out Thrive Fantasy. Again, that is also linked in our bio across social channels. And there you can place parlays with better odds than you're going to get at any traditional book. And especially as a newcomer, you will get some insane boosted odds and promos as part of parlays. Like we were going to have more this weekend for the NFL, but we had one this week where it was LeBron James over half a point. You throw that in a parlay at even odds. You're freaking making free money, people. So go ahead do that sign up with the link or with promo code nerd and with that as always appreciate you guys hope you've enjoyed i've been carson brabber i have been logan camden and this was nerd sesh If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.